Many of us dream of staying as young as possible for as long as possible. The dilemma is which pills, potions or programs are going to help us to do this. I'm Ellie Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness, the mess and the uncertainty of our world. For those based in Australia, you'll know the face and the voice of Dr. Norman Swan as the person who guided us with reason and practicality through the fear and the unknown of COVID-19, in particular through his podcast, CoronaCast. Trained in paediatrics, Dr. Swan was one of the first medically qualified journalists in Australia with a broadcast career spanning more than 30 years. He currently hosts Radio National's The Health Report and continues to co-host CoronaCast, which comes out once a week. He's also the co-founder of Tonic Media Network, which is a health channel that plays in GP's waiting rooms. Dr. Norman Swan has ventured into the area of longevity and his latest book, So You Want to Live Younger Longer, is the ultimate guide to what you can do at any age to say, stay young and healthier longer. In this conversation, we dive into the research around movement, nutrition, supplements, and for me, the reminder that our brain and our body are deeply connected as we navigate aging means that how we think, feel, and the level of perceived control that we have over our experiences is just as important. So no matter what your age, so you want to live younger, longer, gives you information that you need to make your own choices without wasting time and money. It's a book that I've absolutely devoured and this conversation I really, really soaked up. It's a conversation that I know that you'll get as much out of it as I did. So please soak up the insights and the thinking from Dr. Norman Swan. Dr. Norman Swan, it's great to be connecting with you and sitting down and talking about longevity with you. My, my pleasure too, Ali. Thanks for having me. You are known as Australia's most trusted doctor. A lot of people what well, might that's a, remember that's a marketing you. bullshit on the, that's on my, the cover of the book. That's what you know, they say. Don't believe, it's not necessarily truth in advertising. <laughs> it's interesting because when I was thinking about it, when it comes to health and information about health, there's we are in an age of information and marketing, right? And trust can come and go because things get said and then not said. What's your approach to researching, discerning, and then sharing information? Well, there's, you know, there are some basic rules and the the most basic rule and every single person listening to us will know it. If it looks or sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true and save your money and go back to basics. The other I mean, the other thing is, if you're lucky enough to see a story in a newspaper or a magazine and you're not sure whether it's bullshit or not, see whether or not they talk about the actual research itself and how, you know, just get a feel for the research itself. Because if they're making huge claims on 20 people, you know yourself that's crap. If it's 20,000 people, then, oh, well, I might sit up and, and listen here. So get us, and if they don't talk about it at all, just have a, a healthy degree of of skepticism. And um, you know, and a lot of dietary research is into tiny numbers of people. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember when I was co-hosting Life Matters on Radio National, did a huge row with the producers at one point over childcare research, and there was a there was a lot of um, 
Bettina Arndt was writing in the papers, decrying childcare and you know, saying the best place for the child was at home and so on. And the producers were arcing up at this. And some research came out saying that family daycare was actually better than looking after a child at home. And I thought, well, I, you know, the, uh, I wasn't against daycare. My own children went into daycare from quite an early age. But I just thought, well, look, can we just look at the, uh, the research here? And they were making the conclusion on something like nine children and making this massive counterintuitive thing. You know, you know, look, yeah, it's good for your kids to look after them yourself, but if you put them into good daycare, they're not going to, you know, their lives are not going to be destroyed. But to make a claim like that, that it's better on nine children is a little bit thin. So, but you're not lucky enough usually to be able to see the actual data on which a lot of media reports are made. And um, so you just got to be careful on the basis of a newspaper story. And most people listening to us already are um, to, about changing your life, changing your diet and so on. You've got to dig a little bit of deep, a little bit deeper. And so my, my aim is to expose stuff like that. And, and the books have given both books, the first one and this one, have given me the chance to help people understand what the data say and give you references so that in an easy to read way, hopefully with a bit of humor, um, you get an idea of some of it. That sense of discerning to actually sit back and ask. Um, and yeah, I know the, the marketing kind of spin in terms of most trusted doctor is a bit tongue in cheek, but the level of actually posing that question and, and, and giving people information that makes sense and, and that sense of discernment, I think that becomes really useful. In terms of diving into the research around longevity, is this, are we fairly, are we just scratching the surface around understanding longevity? Where are we at in terms of um, where the research is at as you were diving into it, looking into a whole range of different areas? And I want to dive into things around nutrition and exercise and supplements sure. and uh, those sort of things. But is it is it a growing area in terms of the research that's looking yes. into longevity? Yeah, there's, it's a huge area of research, which is still, believe it or not, in its early stages. Um, and let me just define a couple of things because people get confused by the terminology. Um, you'll hear the word, the, the phrase life expectancy being used a lot. And for example, it's used in the context that there's a life expectancy gap between non-Indigenous Australians and Indigenous Australians or First Nations peoples. And it's about 11 years, which is outrageous. Um, but most people listening to our, our conversation are interested in lifespan. How long am I actually going to live? Now, if you look, let's go back to life expectancy. Because when you talk about longevity, it's both, you're talking about both life expectancy and lifespan. For me and you as individuals, we're interested in lifespan. How long are we going to live? But the average, but life expectancy is an average. It's an average of everybody in the population, based on today. So they say, well, a baby born, a baby girl born today has a life expectancy of 83 and a baby boy, maybe 80 or something like that. Um, but that's, that's an average based on today's data rather than what mm. might happen tomorrow or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years time. The reality is a baby girl born today in a well-off suburb with highly educated parents is going to live to a hundred or more. That's the lifespan expectation. And, uh, but, but a baby born 
into a deprived, disadvantaged community is not necessarily going to live to 100, may not even get to 83 uh, by the time they get to those, you know, you know, in 80 years time. We don't know what's going to happen. You've got all sorts of variables. So what we know about, we know quite a lot about the really big picture things that affect how long you live and how well you live. So by the way, just let me finish off on longevity. Mm. It's distorted, it's, 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 it's affected by numbers of years of life gained in the community and numbers of life years of life lost in the community. So the more years gained or the more years lost, the more impact on life expectancy. So I know it's complicated, but you know, just go mm -hmm. with me on this. So most, just let's take Aboriginal people, for example. Most people, would th most people think that the reason why there's a life expectancy gap in Aboriginal people is that a 65-year-old Aboriginal person doesn't get to 80. That's not why there's a life expectancy gap, because although it sounds harsh, by the way, if you get to 65 and you're an Aboriginal person, you've got a pretty good chance of getting to 80, but you may not live quite as long as somebody as a 65-year-old non-Indigenous person. However, the numbers of years of life lost are small. The reason there's a life expectancy gap is that young and middle-aged Aboriginal people die. Um, right. And they die of premature coronary heart disease, they die of uh, self-harm, drug and alcohol, various other things. They die of despair because, and so there are societal things that happen. Now, we're already living younger, longer without actually having done much. An 80-year-old today has the same chances of dying in the next 12 months as a 60-year-old did 50 years ago. So we're already younger at older ages. I mean, there's all sorts of other things going on. You're probably mm. on cholesterol, drugs, and various other things. But essentially, your chassis is younger than a 60-year-old. It was equivalent of a 60-year-old 20 years right. ago. And that's the same at all ages. So why? what's happened uh, to, it, to make that happen? Well, the, the expansion in life expectancy in adulthood really started after World War II. And various things happened. First of all, more and more people finished high school. More and more people went on to university or college and further education. The more education you do earlier in life as a young person, the longer you live, the later you develop Alzheimer's disease, if indeed you develop dementia at all, uh, the later you develop coronary heart disease and cancer. So education makes a huge difference because you've got control over your life, you've got choices, you've got probably more money in your pocket and so on. The other thing that's happened is we've stopped smoking. We've got very low smoking rates. Smoking is really pro-aging. It really speeds up aging in our bodies. So we've stopped smoking. That's made an enormous difference. GPs are getting better at detecting blood pressure. Blood pressure is the next most toxic thing for aging. You know, we, we want to jump to goji berries and fancy diets, but really the basics, yeah. you've got to get the basics right. And I'll talk about that in the book. Yeah. And so blood pressure is very toxic for aging. And so we sorted that out. And, and so we're... So it's stuff in, this, in the community around us, in the environment, that's allowing us to live younger, longer at the moment. And of course, that's precarious. As more and more people are obese, then that's slowing things down. We don't know what whether climate change is going to be controlled. That could have a very adverse mm -hmm. effect on life expectancy. In the United States, there's so much despair in the community that young and middle-aged people are dying of opiate overdoses. Um, and so it's not a solid statistic and the, the big stuff around us makes a big difference, which I talk about in the book before you get down to goji berries and supplements. So interesting because that absolutely speaks to that changing what's happening in society that then is also having an impact on those two areas of definition of whether it's life expectancy 
or lifespan, yes. as you said, what was happening in the 60s versus what's happening now from a societal perspective and what might be happening in 20 years' time might be very different. So can see why that's a, an ongoing sense of research. In terms of that, taking that definition, do you have a sense of a definition between lifespan and, say, health span? So where you talk about living younger, longer, uh, having the, I think you use the terminology, the chassis that's yeah. younger uh, at an older age. How do you see or define the difference between lifespan versus health span? Well, Again, I don't think anybody listening to us is interested in an increased lifespan if it's an unhealthy lifespan and you're miserable. Mm. We're only interested in a healthy lifespan. And by and large, the causes of a longer life are also the causes of a longer, healthier life. Um, just the, exactly the things I've been talking about, plus the other things that we'll talk about, about diet and exercise, all those things. So you get... You do accumulate some disability as you get older. Yeah, you're, you, you might get some knee arthritis. Um, you might get some hip arthritis. You might have your cholesterol's up a little bit and you cholesterol drugs. So it's not as if you're without anything wrong with you. But by and large, you get you know, more and more people. The, the, the extension in lifespan has gone along with healthy lifespan. So you're not living in misery um, but you, you know, you've accumulated some stuff and you've had the 50,000 mile service and, and you keep on going and you're in pretty good shape. The, um, so healthy life, there's, that's one reason why I wrote the book is that the only point to all this is healthy lifespan. Even if you don't mm. live any longer, which but in fact we do live longer, but even if you didn't, if you lived longer, healthier, then that would be a really good result. But in fact, we're doing both. We're living longer and living much healthier, longer, you know, in a, in a younger body. And a lot of this stuff that we've just been talking about with the environment, people just wonder, well, it sounds very soft. And you know, it comes back to your very first question, how do you believe stuff? And what's the science behind things and so on? And what I talk a lot about the book, about in the book, which I think appeals to you and your audience, is that the, the brain runs everything in the body. And we, we, we behave as though the mind and body are separate. We know, that, we know that they're not, but we behave as though, and they're not, they're not separate. Our, my, our brain is designed to monitor the environment. And that includes our job, our relationships, the air we breathe, um, all sorts of things get monitored by the brain. And the brain translates that into physical messages to the rest of the body. It sends out instructions to the rest of the body, raise blood pressure, immune system, you need to be on the alert. Um, and, and so on and so forth. And when our, uh, so a, a really important part of living younger, longer is actually getting that social and psychological environment right for yourself. Because if it's not right, your the physical messages your brain starts to send to the rest of the body have a pro-aging flavor to them and can speed up aging, can speed up brain aging and brain aging in the rest of the body. I mean, I'll give you an example of this complex interaction. Um, get older, you lose friends, you lose family, you start to live alone. You, so that's bad. The brain picks that up as bad and stressful. Starts sending adverse messages to the rest of the body. Be on the alert, blah, blah, blah. Speeds up aging processes. You can't be bothered cooking for yourself at night. So you eat a cheese sandwich. Your diet becomes more monotonous. 
And as your diet becomes monotonous, so the microbiome in your bowel becomes monotonous. And it, instead of counteracting aging, actually pr promotes aging in your body. So the mind and the body and everything work together. Yeah, it's so interesting how we do see them as, as separate, uh, but the, the connection of them, what we choose to do, where we, where we choose to make differences is, is so interesting. Before we get to some of the, the tactics and looking at some of those areas, I'm interested just to touch on a little bit around your background. So my understanding is you grew up in, in Glasgow. What were some of the stories about ageing or even health at, at an ageing level that that you grew up with? Um, well, Glasgow has, still has amongst the highest rates of coronary heart disease, heart attack and strokes per capita in the world. Um, it's got a shorter life expectancy than many other parts of Britain. And people say, well, it's fried Mars bars. You, you know, I've never seen a fried the Mars haggis bar. But I, the... <laughs> well, you, you get fried haggis, you do get fried haggis and you do get fried Black pudding, bread, white pudding. So the, the diet is crap. And I grew up in a family where I got the worst of Scottish food and the worst of Jewish food. You know, so Jewish food is often very unhealthy as well, um, high in saturated fat and what have you. Um, but people blame lifestyle for the short life, you know, the shorter lives mm -hmm. in Glasgow. But it turns out the same as Aboriginal communities here is that in the 50s and 60s, they disrupted while, while trying to get rid of slums. They disrupted communities and people were forcibly effect, effectively moved to housing schemes distant from the city, isolated with poor transport, maybe a shop, definitely a pub. And young and middle aged people started dying of despair. And that's about um, depression, anxiety, self-harm, drug and alcohol, violence and so on. And that was the so you couldn't divorce yourself from this social. In other words, I went to medical school and learned, whilst you've got to learn your biology, you've got to learn the pathology, you've got to learn uh, how the body works. Medicine is a social science as well. And if you don't understand that people are affected by their social circumstances, their psychological circumstances, and they're affected physically by them, mm. you, you are missing a, a very important part of medicine. So even if you're a plastic surgeon, you know, and you want to do a good job, you, you want to know the narrative of the person sitting in front of you because if you, are, if you misread that person's motives for wanting plastic surgery, you may never actually be able to help them because their reasons, their personal narrative is not one that's going to be solved by having a nose fixed or liposuction. And, um, and so even to be a good surgeon, You've got to work, you've got to know the biology and you've got to understand the person and their narrative. The stories that sit behind it, there's some research around, um, you know, plastic surgery and people having that and either not seeing the difference or it not lasting very long and, and falling back into a sense of despair yes. very, very quickly. So, yeah. yeah, I'm kind of preaching to the choir. I'm not anti-plastic mm. surgery or judgmental about it, but... Um, You've got to have realistic expectations. And I do talk about plastic surgery in the book. Mm. Um, I also, by the way, talk about if you haven't had work done and you look young on the outside, are you actually young on the inside as well? And the answer to that question is probably yes. Um, because the factors that age your skin, like sunlight, probably also age you on the inside too. 
I found that a really interesting part as I was going through it, not something I'd thought of before, because when we talk about age and you even describe as, as kids and teenagers and late teenagers, you want to be older. And then there's a tipping point where you're almost, you, you want to be different to the age that you are. Um, That's right. You reach a pro- point of equipoise in older age. And when you're younger and you look at older age, people think, oh God, I really, uh, the last thing I want to be is, is old and miserable. But in fact, as you get older, you get happier on average. I mean, there's, there's exceptions to that rule, but people just be, start to become happier in their own skin. What are the stories they're telling themselves at that age? They've come to an acceptance. Um, they're usually people who still have their family around them and they've got good social contact. They're involved in the community. They're volunteering or they haven't retired early. Retirement can be quite toxic for aging. Um, and if you do retire from wage labor, you really want to keep something else up like where you're working, like volunteering or what have you. It's not that you have to earn money out of work, but you do need to, it's good to work and uh, to keep your brain active. So so they've got stuff going on around them mm. and they don't want to be anybody else other than they are, than who they are. Real sense of acceptance. But that piece I read around, if people are feeling like or telling you that you look younger than what you are on the outside, uh, then it's likely that the cells on the inside are also corresponding. I, th- I found that really, really interesting. No, oh, it's um, very heartening. But, you know, if, you, if you're looking old on the outside, what do you do about it? <laughs> well, you, read, you read the book because there, the there is stuff you <laughs> Let's shift to some of the, the tactics that we uh, that you address in the book, but also we often think about. The first one being nutrition and food. In particular, there's been a growing trend, and I'm interested in your take on kind of intermittent fasting, for example. One of the pieces of research that I read that I found interesting is that there are elements um, of intermittent fasting that is finding that we are actually gaining uh, fatty tissue around organs. And so whilst you might be um, fat skinny almost in, in terms of increasing some of that those kind of fat particles, have I read that research right? Or Yeah, I haven't seen that particular research. But um, there, if, if you just back up a little bit, there are all sorts of things on the market being offered to you as mm. anti-aging. Um, and you can put aside all vitamins. None of there, there's no rationale, nothing in vitamins that really is going to be anti-aging. There's no evidence from randomised trials and so on. But there is a group of anti-aging compounds where, which should work, but and it does come to the five two diet. So we'll get to mm. it. Um, which should work, but unfortunately at the moment they don't. And, and I'm talking about resveratrol. I'm talking about an anti-diabetic drug called metformin. There's a whole list of them, and I deal mm. with them in the book. Um, there's um, NMN. There's NAD boosters, various things like that. And they change biochemical pathways which slow down aging processes. And when you give them to mice, the mice live 20 or 30% longer in good health. So it increases the healthy lifespan of mice by about 20 or 30% and in other species too. So they should work in humans, but actually at the moment they don't. And I'll I'll tell you why they don't for a minute and then Mm. I'll double back to your question about diet because it it is absolutely relevant to diet. So the reason we don't actually know why they don't work, but what I talk about in the book is, is is a complicated 
concept, but it's really important to understand. And it's, well, it's actually not that complicated. It's about balance. Our bodies are in balance. Blood pressure goes up, the, the body brings it back. Stress levels go up, adrenaline, body brings them back. Hormones go up, body brings them back down. Mm -hmm. For everything that happens, there's a countervailing force. And your body is a complex set of balances. And, um, and what happens in life is that, and I, I use the metaphor of the, or analogy of the Tower of Pisa. Imagine the Tower of Pisa, it's just been built straight up and down. And imagine that, that instead of the tower, that's your balance system in your body. All these complex balances are straight up and down in a very youthful profile. Now, what happens with time, maybe chronic stress, maybe smoking, maybe air pollution, just life, the tower of balance starts to tilt like the Tower of Pisa. Mm -hmm. And it tilts towards a direction that's towards aging. So it's in an aging direction. So that tilt is towards aging. But what the, what the body does, it's readjusted to that new normal, which is an aging profile in your body, once it's off the tilt, once it's on the tilt. But what it's remembered to do is when something, when a force hits it, it opposes it. So when you give these substances in the doses that they're currently being given, because they haven't got a clue what the right dose is, the body might react to begin with saying, oh, this is good. I'll, you, you control some aging processes. Then after maybe a week or two, the body says, hello, I'm being pushed in an abnormal direction and it pushes back. And so, it, it, but, to, but still in the tilt, the whole the tilt doesn't fit, go to back to the vertical. Mm. It's just that on that tilt, you've still got the balance inside. It doesn't like getting pushed around. Now, what people are saying was, well, maybe with these substances, What's going to work? First of all, we don't know the right dose. And we think that a little bit of something is good, more is better. It turns out that some of these substances work in an entirely different way when you give them in high doses. It's counterintuitive. Nobody understands why. Vitamin C may be an example of that. There's some, you know, vitamin C in low doses is antioxidant. But there's some evidence that in high doses, it's pro-oxidant, it's pro-aging because um, it works differently. So mm -hmm. we don't know the doses. So what some people are saying is that maybe one day we'll find a way of microdosing these, maybe once a fortnight in combinations. So one day they might work. But what they're pretty much all trying to do, and this is where it comes back to the 5-2 diet, what they're all trying to imitate is the one thing that we know works across pretty much all species in terms of slowing down aging. And that's calorie restriction. Some people call it dietary restriction. So that's creating a calorie gap in your life. Now, the issue with the 5-2 diet, a couple of issues. One is that when you, first of all, you think that you can do anything you like on the five days, or you can't. You've got to have a really high quality diet on the five days, like a Mediterranean style diet with cuisine. You can come back to that if you want. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that when you reduce your calories, just like the body tilts and goes to a new balance with hormones and various other things, when you reduce your calorie intake, your body resets its energy and your resting metabolic state burns fewer calories. So in other words, when you're just sitting around or lying around, you don't burn as many calories. 
So after a period of time on the 5-2 or other restrictive diets that really radically reduce your calorie intake, your body readjusts. So what's, what's going to work for you is a calorie gap. And that calorie gap there with time with some of these diets narrows. You don't get the benefit you got at the beginning. The benefit reduces. And that's where exercise comes in. Exercise recreates the calorie gap because you're burning calories with it, with exercise. And you can always burn more calories with exercise if you're doing it with moderate intensity and doing it progressively. Um, because your body gets used to exercise as well. So once you're getting good at something, you've got to push yourself and do more. So you can recreate that calorie gap. So we tend to think of exercise too narrowly. We look at, we think of it as good for our muscles. Yeah, it's really important to, re hit, you know, to keep your muscles strong and big. It's good for your cardiovascular system, your respiratory system, and so on. It is good for your brain as well. But it's also good for aging because it refreshes tissues. It can turn old muscles into young muscles. Um, and it creates that calorie gap as well, which is what you want. So there's lots of metabolic things that happen with exercise beyond what you just think narrowly you, is the usual stuff, strong muscles and a healthy heart. That sense of um, really interesting to hear you talk about the recalibration that our bodies do when we have a calorie deficit, so we get the benefits early, but then our bodies recalibrate based on kind of that energy because they're always it's always trying to find that kind of homeostasis uh, and then the added benefit that can come from exercise. In terms of exercising, moving your body for longer sense of youthfulness, are there things to be mindful of? Are there kind of protocols that you have found in your research to be beneficial? Well, you've got to mix aerobic exercise with muscle strengthening. And depending on how much money you can afford, it's good to get somebody to teach you how to do muscle strengthening properly. Then, then you can do it by yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to think that you're doing stuff and you're not actually doing productive exercises because you've got the angle slightly wrong. So it's important that you understand how to do that. I mean, some of these apps are pretty good at that, showing you how to do things properly because technique is actually quite important. Even if you're not going to the gym, Technique is really important. So mixing that, doing doing ex progressive exercise. So if you're, if you're getting off your bum for the first time, going for a walk along the flat will feel like moderate exercise and probably will be. But after a couple of weeks, you'll get used to that. So you've either got to do the same distance in less time, mm -hmm. so you're walking faster, or you work long, walk, walk longer faster, or you start trying to jog. Jogging is really good for you. Gravity is really important. The pounding on the pavement is not bad for you. It's actually good for you, and it strengthens your bones and, and working against gravity. Now, if all you can do is swim, great, but ideally, a significant part of your exercise should be gravity-based. Um, and if you are going to the gym, there's a cognitive aspect to uh, exercise because you're counting your reps, you're counting your sets, you're often doing it with other people. So there's actually a cognitive benefit beyond what the cogn what the brain biology benefit of exercise is. That sense of progressive exercise. So keep pushing, what it, whatever it is that that you are doing. One of the things you talk about impacting on aging is chronic stress, and you gave the example before if you. Um, 
it does have an impact on what you might choose to eat, uh, how you feel, how you sleep. Um, so we know that chronic stress definitely has an impact. What, how do we know when we might be in a state of chronic stress? What might be some of the signs or what do we need to be looking out for when you, again, coming back to that kind of sense of definition, because there can be such variety of definitions of what do we mean yeah. by stress? So interested in, in how do you define or class chronic stress or what might be some of the signs for people to look out for? Well, as a psychologist, you can mark me on my answer here because what what the research is usually focused on is what psychologists call locus of control. And locus of control crudely, and this is where you're going to fail me in my exam, but locus of control crudely is how much freedom do you feel you have in your life to make the decisions you want to make? And how much pressure do you feel from somewhere else that you can't make those decisions so that you you don't have a sense or, 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 so the, the locus of control should be within yourself. I've got freedom. Yeah, everybody's got restrictions. You've got kids. You've got, you haven't got all the money you would like in life. You haven't got necessarily the house you want, blah, blah, blah. We've all got restrictions in life. But by and large, I'm okay. I, I, I've got the locus of control here. If the locus of control is somewhere else, then that is not a healthy situation to be in. And it can be somewhere else because of your job. You've got a lousy boss. You've got a crap job that you don't like. You're under pressure. You're not allowed to get on with the job that you want to do. And you feel, some people call that burnout, but you feel hopeless in your job. You're not doing a great time. If you're a single parent with three kids on a pension, the locus of control is somewhere else. It's, with, you know, it's in an abstract place with lack of money. Um, if you're living in a in, deprived disadvantaged circumstances, it's somewhere else. Aboriginal communities mm -hmm. know all about this without having, you know, I'm sure they've read psychological textbooks more recently, but, you know, not 70 or 80, 90 years ago, they've always cherished control as a, an important uh, aspect of their lives. They you want to be controlled, nothing about us without us. Uh, health organizations in Aboriginal communities are called community controlled health organizations. The voice is all about control and bringing the locus of control in a community sense back towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So uh, really important. Now, if you lose that locus of control, there is a lot of research to suggest your brain does not like it. You don't like it. You can feel it. You can feel oppressed by it. You kind of know it. By the way, there's been studies of women with breast cancer. And regardless of your level of education, how much money you got in your pocket, Within a few weeks of starting your treatment, the locus of control is with the cancer treatment team, not with you. That's why a lot of people go for complementary therapy. At least it's something I can control and do from and do for myself. Yes. Yep. Um, and your brain doesn't like that lack of control, and it responds really adversely, and it sent it and it, it responds in a pro-aging way. And, um, again, lots of research what I talk about in the book and. So it fires up the immune system. It changes the way your hormones work. It raises your blood pressure. Um, apart from the fact that it, it makes you feel lousy and you can't make the dietary choices you might want to make in life or time for exercise and what have you. Um, and, and loneliness is a form of chronic stress. Um, there, are all, there are all sorts of things that go on and that work together. And, but they, have certain, they definitely have brain effects and physical effects on the body. Have you noticed some of this conversation, if I just think about our experience from a society point of view across the last two years with COVID-19 here in Australia, 
uh, borders shut down, restrictions put in place that has felt like they were and were outside of our control. Um, some of that uh, sense of uncertainty, I think, has kind of stuck stuck with people this kind of feeling on edge maybe this could be kind of taken away has that been some of the conversation or have you noticed some of the impact of that um in terms of people's feeling of stress at at the moment just talk to a melbourneian (laughs) just talk to a melbourneian any melbourneian and they'll give you an account of chronic stress it's in their bones isn't it distress Mm. and distress Mm. Um, incredibly traumatized by the whole experience. Not that they think it was wrong to be locked down, but it was tough. And um, very sensitive to people who criticized Victoria um, uh, through that because it's taken personally and it required a lot of control. It required a lot of organization. It required a lot of fortitude to actually get through it. And to have that feeling, that, that sort of thing undermined um, makes Victorians very angry, particularly Melbournians very angry. So that you have a city of four, more than four million people, a lot of whom are very traumatised. Sometimes it's just that, yeah, understanding and having the language to understand why you might be feeling a bit rattled at the moment. What are some effective ways or strategies, tools around managing dealing with chronic stress um well you're the psychologist but i mean i I read through so in the context of work people throw around the term burnout which um i described what burnout is earlier but it is a manifestation of chronic stress so if you're feeling that at work um what the people who write and have researched this um say is examine your work situation because people make the instant, often will make the conclusion that this job isn't for me. I, I need to change career. Well, the job might be for you, but the way that that particular company or organization is organized might be wrong. Or it might just be entirely focused on your boss. Um, and if you can, if, you, if you've got the agency to be able to do something, then to discuss it with your boss and have a conversation about it, um, if you're able to do that safely, can actually solve the problem because some bosses don't realize what they're doing and they're under pressure themselves and the system's there. Or it just may be that it's not right and you do have to move on. So I'm, I'm very sensitive to Mm. this control thing and, you know, working in a large organization like the ABC, there are periods of time inevitably where people are trying to tell me what to do, trying to confine me into ways that I know are wrong and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm lucky that I'm in a reasonably, secure position, well, tomorrow I might get the sack, but you know, essentially I'm in a reasonably secure position where I can just hunker down and think to myself, I'm going to be here longer than you are, chum, um, and you know, and say yes, but ignore it and go and continue doing it. It drives them nuts, but, you know, get on with it. But not everybody, <laughs> Have a sense of control, yeah. You know, not yeah. everybody can do that in different situations mm. and feel it. Um, if it's in the home situation, then again, it it's really hard to do this by yourself. If you are in a tunnel, a dark tunnel, and you know, and feeling this, relationship isn't working out. There isn't enough money coming into the house. Um, you're not giving the time to the kids that you want to give, and everything's getting torn. 
really hard sometimes just to be able to find the way through. And some people are lucky that they've got people around them who can reflect on their lives and help. So look, the short answer is people around you to help if you've got mm. them. If you haven't got them, uh, women are much better at this than men. So I went through a period um, a few years ago, a very bad year of my life. Lots of things were going wrong. Um, by the way, there are two words I hate. One is resilience and the other is wellness. And what we're talking about now is resilience. Hmm. And I think resilience is a word that's used to victimize people, to make think there are some people in this world who are resilient and there are some losers who are pathetic and can't bounce back from adversity. And that is such bullshit. Uh, armies around the world have spent millions of dollars trying to find ways to recruit so-called resilient people, to say special forces. They've failed. Special mm -hmm. forces get PTSD. Not they, they get it less, but they do get it. So resilience is a moment in time. You have good years and bad years. You have good times and bad times. And bad times, you don't bounce back from adversity as well. But a year later, you will. And, um, and it doesn't mean you're a weak person and so on. And so what I did this year, where that, this, this, that particular year, where there were multiple things going on, and I, and I actually learned what I could deal with during that year. But I actually went to see a psychologist who understood men. And I was just very lucky to actually, mm. a, actually a psychiatrist friend recommended a psychologist because he'd gone to the psychologist, the psychiatrist had. And he sat down and there was, and basically he took a history to work out that I wasn't at risk, I wasn't going to harm myself. And then he just asked me some very practical things, which actually a friend could have asked, but he did it in a very professional way in the system. And, you know, and I believed it more because it came from him. And he just said, you know, this is all going to pass. All this bad stuff will pass. And when it does pass, tell me what your ambitions are, what you want from life. Mm -hmm. So I listed a few things. And he said, well, why aren't you doing them now? And I just looked at him and he said, okay, you're going to go home and you're going to phone up. So I said, I want to see friends I haven't seen for a while, et cetera, you know, reconnect. Phone them up. What are you doing on Saturday night? I thought he was asking me out on a date, but you know, what are you, <laughs> what are you, what are you doing Saturday night? And I said, um, well, nothing. And he said, well, phone up your friends and go out to the movies. So I started just living the life mm. I wanted to live in an imaginary Later. period, maybe two years ahead, but I did it now. Very simple cognitive therapy. It really was cognitive therapy in many ways without really going through all the formal stuff. And I think that's sometimes where you do need professional help to look at your situation objectively and say, you know, here's a way through, a simple way through. I am 100% with you on that sense of kind of resilience. I think it can be used as a weapon in a sense of, well, you either are or you aren't, and you, or you either get it or you don't. And there are so many definitions around it. Whereas I think what you're describing and even sharing your own experience is a sense of, I... There was a point in time, it was really hard, found a way to get help and come back to those little things. Um, and sometimes that, you know, the right question at the right time that goes, oh, yeah, I can do that. I don't have to wait, um, becomes and, and, really yeah. important. And it comes to sort of mental health first aid as well. So mm. a friend of yours might look as if they're in distress. You don't have to become their therapist, 
but you can ask if they need help and what's going on. You know, and having a drink with them might just, you know, having some reflection there. And if, you know, and if they are at risk and what is self-harm, then you can get them help. You, you don't have to be their therapist. But that notion that you can actually help somebody therapeutically just by being a good friend or colleague, it's really, yeah. impor really important. Yeah. And that that's as important to living a younger life to, to feeling a sense of, um, yeah, sense of vitality or a sense of health in, yeah. in who and where you are. There's one thing I'll say about a sense of vitality. Um, because you notice I said the other word I don't like is wellness. Well, I, I don't, I don't mind I well-being. I purposefully didn't say that. <laughs> I, I don't mind well-being at all. I think well-being is a good word. But well, wellness is, you know, that we've been, you, talk, you started this conversation about marketing and how we're exposed to lots of different messages. And, and the prevailing message that we're exposed to is that we've got some God-given right to feel wellness, you know, and if you're a bloke, you jump out of bed in the morning and you go to the sink and wash your pearly white teeth and admire your washboard abdomen. And if you're a woman, you jump out of bed full of beans and admire your thin thighs and, and uh, you know, and small bottom and your perfect children come in. You know, most of us wake up in the morning and feel crap. And, uh, you know, and if you're like me, you might have tried to get a washboard abdomen, but it looks, you know, resolutely it's like a, a bottle of pin <laughs> Pinot Noir. Um, and so, and how would you know you're well if you don't have days where you feel crap? Mm. And, you know, life is a cycle and you feel good in days, bad days. What's abnormal is every day's crap. You've lost interest in what you want to do. You don't want to see your friends anymore. That's abnormal, but cyclical stuff is is normal, and we we should you know rejoice in vitality when we feel it, because you know you feel it because the day before you didn't feel it. So true, a sense of cycle, and you only yeah, and and then you can be really in the moment when you do have that sense of vitality and recognise that the the days you don't feel great, those two will pass. I mean, how do you feel a sense of vitality when you're uh, you, you've got multiple lists, you've got a partner who's crap at doing housework and you're carrying the load and you're being a taxi before you actually have to do your day's work. I mean, really. Put a filter on Instagram. That's, <laughs> that's all that kind of works oh, right. in that moment. So don't don't uh, do Instagram, that would be my advice. No. <laughs> I... Uh, Selfishly, um, I'm interested in asking you a question around family and genetics. One of the things you talk about in terms of the sense of, um, I guess, disease or knowing in terms of living younger, longer, and you ask people to kind of know, go back and almost look at your family and know where people when people have died and what they have died of uh, and what you might be able to Again, not through doom and gloom, but just understanding what might be some of the yes. genetic code that sits underneath that. Um, I, for me, I kind of sit on this duality, and I'm interested in kind of posing this to you. If you help me, to, if you're okay for me to self-indulge on this, I have um, a mother that had got bowel cancer at the age of 54, so quite young, and passed away from bowel cancer, so cancer in genetics. Um, but 
four, three of my four grandparents lived into their 90s. Um, my great-grandmother lived to 103 and I have an uncle, great-uncle at the moment who lived to 102. So it's really interesting for me. I kind of sit on this duality of understanding there is cancer in genetics and I am doing what I can to be proactive around that at the age that I am, at 45, but also understanding that there is this sense of there is longevity in family genes. As we look at some of that, what might be some of the things either medically or mentally from a mindset point of view when we ask that question um, that's useful to look at and then, I guess, act on or, or move on from, from there? So there's a lot wrapped up in that, in that question. Let's just take longevity genes. It used to be said to get to 100, well, to get to 100 historically has used to be a genetic abnormality. You've got mm. that genetic abnormality almost certainly in your body. It's a nice genetic abnormality, but a genetic abnormality nonetheless. But for most people, getting to 100 now is not to do with your genes. It's to do with how you've lived, whether you've smoked, you know, mm. whether your blood pressure is treated and so on, how much education you've had. A little bit to do with your genes, but uh, you know, significantly how you've lived. The genes, the longevity genes kick in at the extreme of old age. So now that more, more and more of us are living to our 90s and to 100, they kick in at about 105, 110. So just like your family, you know, you're getting, they're getting to 102, 103. Mm. Um, and that, but, but because life has got them to 102, 103, uh, you know, to 100, and the genes get you to 102, 103, you know, to the extreme of old age. I'm being slightly simplistic about it, but the point is you can get to 100 without having longevity genes. Hmm. Um, but it helps to have them. And then if you do get to 100, you're more likely to get to 105 or 110 in the future if you've got the longevity genes. And if, we, if you and I were talking in 25 years' time, that might be 110 or 115. That's you know, that's could be right. the way thing, things go. Um, now that's a different story from uh, which is what I talk about in the book. What I talk about in the book is that before you get into the goji berries and supplements, um, you've got to do the basics. In your 20s, 30s, 40s, you need to know at least once in each decade what your blood pressure is and what your cholesterol is. You do not want a higher than average cholesterol or blood pressure in your 20s because that's going to batter away at you for decades and increase aging at an early age. So you can get that under control, reducing salt, reducing weight, whatever you want to do. And if it's really high, then maybe a genetic issue, which drugs will, will help and will actually give you a very normal, long life to, to, you know, for the price of taking a, drug, you know, a pill a day. Um, but then there's knowing, as you say, knowing who died of what at what age in your family. And if there is, if there is some, somebody who's close to you uh, or a pattern in your family of people getting cancer or heart disease or, or another disease under the age of 60, then there may be genes running in your family which predispose you. So with your mother getting caught, you would, I'm sure you've already had it, but you need to have get full genetic testing just in case you've got something called Lynch syndrome, which is the genetic abnormality that usually is there when you get colon cancer at an early age and predisposes to other cancers. Now, if they discover you've not got Lynch syndrome, 
then it's unlike you could probably relax a little bit about life, even though your mother had that problem. Mm. But if you have, then surveillance will save your life and keep you living younger longer. And then all those other genes that you've got in your body from your other relatives will kick they can in. kick in. <laughs> but if you if you ignore that that little potential uh, mm. landmine, which is the genes that your mother might have actually given you, then it doesn't matter what you've got from your grandparents. That's going to get you. And and that's my point in the book is don't let that get you because that's avoidable. You can you can sort out cholesterol, you can sort out some cancer risks and so on. So the other stuff can kick in and get you to old age very healthily. Thank you. That's very helpful. <laughs> I know we went down a quite a, a personal path, but really interesting, I think, to be kind of asking those questions. In terms of this book, um, and your own non-negotiables around the uh, living longer, living younger, longer. Um, what are two or three of your own personal non-negotiables that, that you've put into place uh, in terms of your own longevity? This is, this is a question <laughs> that I hate because, you know, one of the first things you learn at medical school is, you know, do as I say, but not as I do. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I always got a lot of exercise, but really now I try and get an hour a day of pretty hard exercise, doing the combination of things that I was talking about. I try not to be lazy about meals when I come home um, and cook, even if it's just for me. Um, so I'm eating a diverse diet. I never did eat much red meat, but I probably eat less now than I used to. I still indulge from time to time. Um, I'm very bad at calorie control, really bad at calorie control. And, um, you know, if you, if you and I, if I was talking to you at a drinks party and there's finger food, uh, much as I'm fascinated by our conversation, only 50% of my brain is focused on our conversation. 50% is stopping my arm going to the tray as it goes by. You know, people, you know that rings bells with lots. I find it very yeah. hard to get that calorie gap, I must say. Um, and I, and I do probably think harder than I did before about my relationships um, and my friends and seeing them and my kids and just having, you know, and thinking about the future and making sure that, that, that there's that wraparound. And I've got no intention of retiring. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the, the evidence is not good on retirement in terms mm. of aging. And so it's so the issue here is not giving up your job. The issue is work and being at work. And so if you give up your paid job, well, take up volunteering. Um, learn a new skill and do it with other people because actually learning a new skill is work. Mm. Um, so don't give up work. You can give up wage-related work, but don't give up work. And I've got, well, I've got no intention of giving up either wage-related work or you know, all the other stuff. Um, I, I would love to have more time to learn a new skill um, or refresh old skills, but I just don't at the moment. Writing books is my new skill. <laughs> and there's plenty, plenty more to write. If you had time for one skill, what would you learn? I'd probably go back to the piano and my, you know, when I was eight years old and um, 
got wrapped over the knuckles and try and relearn the piano with a much more sympathetic teacher. And certainly, <laughs> and, and certainly, I want I want to I want my French to be better than it is. Um, and I've got a little apartment in Italy, and I want to learn Italian. So anyway, I want to mm. get my French better, and I want to learn Italian, which I find actually quite a difficult language. Um, and so I've got a few things on the agenda there, which um, I'm wanting to do, but I haven't bought a piano yet, so it's going to be hard for me to learn the piano. <laughs> maybe, maybe it needs to be in your um, in your place in Italy, so you're over there combining a few a few of those skills. Um, look, I've really valued this conversation and the, you know, we started with that sense of discerning information, inquisitive information and, and really looking at what it means to live younger, longer. I want to end with one final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Well, it's to live the life you want to live is, is how I would describe it. Um, you don't need to stand out. Your life does not need to stand out for anybody else other than yourself, your family, if you've got a family, um, and the people who matter to you as you know, as a, as a person, as an individual. But really, it's the living the life you want to live. And that's a standout because there's a lot of people who are not lucky enough to be able to do that for all sorts of reasons. So if you can analyze your life and be true to yourself, I think that's that's a standout. Thank you, Norman. Welcome. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life. Life.